I want to have you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And just by way of reminder, two epic things are happening next week. Besides the ministry fair, I'm going to begin preaching from the Gospel of Matthew. And then I'm also going to begin preaching from the Legacy Standard Bible. So if you haven't picked yours up yet, you can cheat and get the app. Um, but it's better to have a, a, an actual real Bible in your hand. I know everybody with your phones, you're hiding them right now, but that's, that's all right. Genesis chapter 1. This is our final Sunday to address the questions I wanted to cover in our summer series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions. And my final question for this morning was going to be, does biblical parenting guarantee results? To answer that question, I, I realized I really already answered that. I'd like to refer you to our media website, steadfastinthefaith.org. At Steadfast in the Faith, you'll find a series I preached several years ago called God Honoring Parenting. And in that series, God Honoring Parenting, I'll, I'll show you in there that the Bible doesn't teach results-oriented parenting as it so much it teaches to parent to the glory of God. And so I think that the introductory message will answer that. And if you want to continue on, there's eight more messages in this series. I had one final message in this series this morning, and I felt like there was one topic that really needed to be covered. I spent a lot of time thinking every week about reading and preaching, and I'm always looking for the ever-elusive just-right sermon. I, I'm still waiting. I've been waiting 25 years. I've, I've never come down from the pulpit and said, that's exactly what I wanted to have happen. That's never happened. The goal of preaching is to convey the truth of Scripture in a way that's convincing, in a way that's logical, in a way that's text-driven. It doesn't obscure the Word of God, but rather puts a microscope on the Word of God so you can see it with clarity. It, preaching is to give you a window into the mind of God. And one of the things that preaching is to do, it is to be the proctor, the test giver, to allow the scriptures to administer tests to your heart, particularly to deeply held beliefs and convictions, to test them against revelatory truth. And if necessary, to correct them. And what does the Bible say that preaching is to do with deeply held convictions that don't line up with scripture? You might be a little surprised. If a deeply held belief doesn't pass that test, then the preached word is meant to capture those thoughts and put them in jail. So, well, that doesn't sound very friendly. That's what the Apostle Paul did, though. He said about his own preaching in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's often misunderstood by Christians as taking their own thoughts captive. It's not. It's the preacher taking your thoughts captive. That thought doesn't line up with Scripture. I'm going to take it and throw it in jail. That's what Paul said. In our own body here, as the Lord has graciously brought so many new members and attendees in the past number of months, one of the questions that causes angst, it causes worry, it causes consternation, involves the extent of the sovereignty of God. Particularly in the realm of our salvation in Christ. So the question I'd like to address this morning is simply, how sovereign is God? Now I want to take a bit of time to get into this because I know this is a tender topic. I know this is delicate. I know that this is, is even very emotional for many of you. It hits a very soft spot in our hearts. And I have to be fair that those with perhaps a broader view of the sovereignty of God, that, that God is sovereign over every single thing, including salvation. To be fair, sometimes those in that camp can try to be right for the sake of being right or for winning an argument and perhaps not be as patient with others as they ought to be as they wrestle through that issue. I personally wrestled with this issue profoundly as I grew up in Christian circles that placed responsibility for salvation solely at the feet of the lost. And on top of that, I was taught that you can lose your salvation over and over again and you must choose it over and over again as an act of the will. And for me, that caused utter terror because I never knew which side of the fence I was on. 
And having been told countless times that I had to muster up the strength, muster up the willpower and the desire to forsake my sin. And by the way, I really liked sinning. So that was a hard message for me to hear. And instead, I had to walk under my own power to the cross of Christ. That overwhelmed me. But it also tickled my ego. Because every time I thought I was getting saved again, I internally patted myself on the back more and more for having made that free will decision. Now, for me, I really didn't stand a chance to a certain degree because I read the Bible the way I'd been taught to read it, and that is through the lens of human responsibility. I never heard any other way to read the Bible. I was raised in Christian circles in which preaching and teaching had one purpose. It was to call you to get saved again and again and again, and that you had to muster up the strength to make your way and drag yourself to the cross. I lost track of how many times growing up I sang the mid-1800s hymn, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. And then the, the chorus says, come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Every verse is like this. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? This hymn presents Jesus as passively waiting and hoping that the lost will come to faith as a personal free will decision. That he's even pleading from a position of docile inactivity for you to make the first move. And it's actually a beautiful hymn musically, but in every verse, All the sovereignty is with the sinner and none of the sovereignty is with Christ. So this morning, I would like to talk to you about the question, how sovereign is God? And my demeanor, my flavor or tone this morning that I'm hoping for is to be, to borrow the line, softly and tenderly speaking to you. My goal this morning is not to win an argument for the sake of argument's sake. My goal this morning is to win your hearts for the honor and majesty of God who inspired the words that we read earlier, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, I think I have to say this at the outset. At Grace Bible Church, we're not fatalists. Fatalists believe that human responsibility is irrelevant, that there's no level of human responsibility. The Bible makes a definite call to salvation. There is a human responsibility at work, Peter called upon the hearers of the first Pentecost sermon. He said to them in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We all agree that the Bible makes a call to respond. We preach for a response because the Bible says to do so. Romans 10.14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I love that verse. That's my job description. It is to call people to salvation. But the question comes when we examine who initiated the ability and the desire to respond to the gospel. Who initiated the desire and the ability to respond to that call? Who initiated faith? Was it God or the sinner? Just as an example, right before Peter made that call for a response, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. In the verse before, we find in Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. We have to deal with the biblical fact that they were cut is a passive verb that means someone else did the cutting. Someone else moved in their hearts. Someone else moved them to beg for mercy. I'm not going to make an argument today. I'm not going to give my case for the total sovereign will of God over the salvation of men as much as possible while still moving my mouth. I just want to get out of the way and let you hear from God himself. I'm I'm not even certain I would call this a sermon. I'm just going to read the Bible to you. I just want to read the Bible to you. I'll give a few comments to help explain a verse here and there. But I just want to read the Bible. I have no outline for you. I have no progression this morning. 
We're just going to read the Bible. Now, I have to tell you, we're going to go fast. So you can either wear gloves and watch out for paper cuts or you can note the references, but I, I have to move quickly. So our question is, how sovereign is God? Particularly when compared to man's power to make any spiritual choices other than to rebel against God. That's our inherent nature. Everyone can choose to rebel because we're born that way. But how sovereign is God? We're just going to read the Bible together. You're in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have to stop right there. Any free will choice that is supposedly said to be possessed by human beings depends on the fact that God made the choice to create everything in the first place. Nobody chose that except God. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is no record of Abram praying for this. There's no record for Abram asking for this. If we had time, I could show you God choosing Isaac over Ishmael. I could show you Jacob being chosen over Esau, Judah to be the ancestor of Christ, Joseph to rule over his brothers. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, verses 1 and 2. This is the last time I'm preaching from this Bible this week, ever, and I find it ironic. I get to turn it so many times, and I'm thankful for that. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. What is this? This is God's choice of Moses. There's, there's no sense of, Moses, I'd like you to fill out an application, and if you so desire, I'd love for you to go and represent. No, this is a command. You will represent me. You are chosen. And Moses tried every which way to get out of it. But God said, no, 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 no. You're going. Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And these are just, just tips of the iceberg here, very representative texts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. It's God's choice. Exodus 19, verse 4. Exodus 19, verse 4. This is God speaking to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's choice. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. And if you're worried about finding all these books, we're just going in order. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Leviticus 20, verse 26. God speaking to Israel, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God's choice. Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Numbers chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, just to demonstrate that God does all the choosing, just what scripture says. He chooses not only people for himself, he chooses leaders. Among the people. Numbers 8 verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying. Take the Levites from among the people of Israel. And cleanse them. There's no asking permission. He takes them. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7. And we see God's grace. God's kindness. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. God speaking to Israel. Through Moses. Verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Now just stop right there. How many, quote unquote, Israelites were there when God chose Israel? One. And he was really old. That was it. 
They were the fewest of all the peoples. That's as few as you can get. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's the reason he chose them. Look with me at Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. You might say, why are you being so repetitive? I'm not. God is. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, look with me at the very end of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 Joshua has gathered all the tribes of Israel to give them kind of one last speech. Joshua chapter 24, verse 3. This is God speaking. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, God's choice. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, there's many places in Judges we could go. I'm just going to show you one. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? All all the terrible things that were happening to Israel. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you God's choice. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, right at the end of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. We see the end of this lovely story of God being gracious to a Moabite woman named Ruth and bringing her to a faithful Israelite man named Boaz. Ruth 4 verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Near the end of verse 17, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth was sovereignly chosen to be the great-grandmother of the greatest king Israel would ever know. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 20. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that means from north to south, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God's choice. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Samuel, verse 7, or chapter 7 rather, verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David didn't ask for that. Verse 12 of the same chapter. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 8. This is Solomon praying for wisdom. And he says in 1 Kings 3, verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. 1 Kings 19, verse 18. Elijah the prophet is concerned that he's the last faithful man left in Israel. But God tells him, 1 Kings 19, verse 18. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. These are 7,000 chosen faithful. 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. The Jews were being unfaithful to the Lord and so the Lord provides some illustrations of how he can save anybody and it doesn't have to be a Jew. 2 Kings 5, verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Why? Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And then in chapter, 14, chapter 5, verse 14, So he, that is Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. God had decreed that this man, Naaman, not only did he have leprosy and that he would be healed, but he decreed that he would be a great commander, and, the, and God gave him success. God's choice. Turn with me to First Chronicles 11. First Chronicles 11. Verse 3. 1 Chronicles 11, verse 3. This is the anointing of David the king. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with him at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. Very end of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Easier to turn to Ezra 1 and go back one page. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 23. The end essentially of the history of Israel chronologically before the exile. But this gives us a transition. Very last verse in 2 Chronicles 36. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. That's God's choice. Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. It repeats, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. This is the prayer of the prayer of uh, chapter 9 here. The prayer of Ezra. And he says in verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. And so that's, that's clear. Go to Esther chapter 1. And you might say, Aha, Steve. The book of Esther never mentions God. Esther chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, and then we could read the rest of the book. The rest of the book is the story of the fact that almost all the Jews were still in Persia, still in Babylon. Very few had returned, and almost all of them were there. And by the wickedness of unbelievers, Every single Jew it had become legal on a certain day to murder all of them. And yet God in his providence saves them. There is not one prayer recorded in the book of Esther saying, please God save us. He simply made the choice. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 7 he says, I have set my love on you, I have chosen you. Look with me at the book of Job, the very end. Job 42 verse 7. Job 42, verse 7. You recall the story of Job? He was a godly man that God allowed to suffer terribly. And three pseudo-friends came and gave them all their opinions. And remember, they didn't know anything. They didn't have a Bible. They were trying to figure this out themselves. And these friends first started off pretty good. They came and sat with Job quietly for seven days while Job was grieving. That would have been great. If they had stopped there, that would have been better. But then they did the worst thing they could do. They started opening their mouths and they started talking. And they had all these speculations. I wonder about this. I wonder about that. But there's one thing all three of those friends agreed upon. Job, we don't know how, but somehow this is your fault. What did God think of that? Verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, 
The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, he's one of the three, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Oh, they're doomed, right? But he says, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. God just chose them for salvation. They didn't ask. Psalm 135, verse 4. Psalm 135, verse 4. To were it possible, I have to go faster. Psalm 35, verse 135, rather, verse 4. And I picked one of dozens and dozens of places we could have gone in Psalms. But Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Ecclesiastes, the next, or Proverbs rather, Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16, verse 9. How sovereign is God? Surely you would say, He's not sovereign over my thoughts. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ecclesiastes, verse 8. Or chapter 8, rather. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 17. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What does that say? That mankind will never have the full picture, ever. Only God is sovereign. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. And you might say, gotcha again. God isn't mentioned in Song of Solomon. It's about human marriage. We're half right. It is about human marriage, but God is mentioned once. The shortest version of the word for God you can use. Chapter 8, verse 6. The bride is speaking to her husband. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. What does she just say? Theologically, she said, I love you. And that love came sovereignly from God. God gave me that love. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. Choosing from passages in Isaiah is like choosing among your own children. There there's so many good ones that you have to pick. Isaiah 41 verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 is like a pillar in the house of the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, not predicting, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What is this saying? Why do things happen? Because God decreed it. And you notice it doesn't say from the beginning to the end. He messes with us from the end to the beginning. Takes away our whole conception of time even. Isaiah 64 verse 8. Isaiah 64 verse 8. In our little Bible study here. This will sound familiar to you because it's quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are, the, you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Clear declaration of the sovereignty of God. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And let me comment right here. We're going to see the word knew or know. Um, The Hebrew word here, it doesn't mean passive knowledge that I figured something out. To know something with this particular word is intimate experiential knowledge. It is, in essence, to take something for yourself. 
Before you were born, before you, I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's choice. Lamentations chapter 3. Another pillar in the household of the sovereignty of God. Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38 is the answer to the rhetorical question, who destroyed Jerusalem? And the answer is the question, Lamentations 3, 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? What does that say? It says that nothing happens without God's command. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. It tells the story again of God's choice of Israel and, and he uses the picture of, a, of an, a newborn born and left in the wilderness to die. Chapter 16, verse 6. And when I, that is the Lord speaking, when I passed by you, that is Israel, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, very familiar story. Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, is having a big party for himself and for his noblemen. And the hand of God appears and writes on the wall. Daniel 5, verse 28. I'll just read the very end. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the prophet Daniel telling the king Belshazzar this. Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. This is the hand of God, God's decree. Hosea chapter 13, right near the very end of Hosea. Hosea 13 verses 4 and 5. Hosea 13, verse 4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. There's that word, know, for active, possessive, experiential knowledge. Look with me at Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, verse 32. Last verse of the chapter. Joel 2.32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors there shall be those whom the Lord calls. Two things, the Lord does the calling to salvation, and God already decreed that some are going to be saved. If total human independent free will exists, theoretically the possibility of nobody picking God, choosing God exists. Joel says otherwise. Look with me at Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. Poor old Amos. He's just out there being a herdsman and and a farmer. Amos chapter 7 verse 14. And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Translation, minding my own business, just being a guy out in the country. Verse 15. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. There's no, there's, no, there's no question there. It's a command. It's a request. Look with me at Obadiah verse 17. Obadiah verse 17. A prophecy against Edom and for Israel. Obadiah verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own Possessions. What does that say? That is a decree of salvation for some. Jonah 1, verse 17. Jonah 1, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. You know the story. Jonah is hurled into the sea by the sailors because he is the one who has been disobedient to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He should have drowned, but God appointed a great fish. By the way, this is, in Hebrew, it's 
we would call it a past tense, a far past tense, that God had a long time ago appointed this fish to do that. Look with me at Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in the fold. God's choice. Nahum chapter 2, verse 2. Nahum chapter 2, verse 2. A declaration. Nahum 2, verse 2, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. It's a decree. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That's an important enough verse that is quoted by the Apostle Paul several times in the New Testament. That there will be saved people. Why? Because of God's decree. He decreed it. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 9. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. That is a decree of salvation for some. Haggai chapter 2 verse 23, the last verse in the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2 verse 23, last verse. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah chapter 13, right near the end of the book. Zechariah 13, verse 8. This is speaking of a time during the great tribulation. What will happen to the Jews? God will preserve a remnant and he will judge the rest and he gives a number. Chapter 13, verse 8, In the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. Those are Jewish casualties and survivors already decreed beforehand. Malachi chapter 3, verse 17. Malachi 3, verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. We come to the words of Christ. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed or planted good seed in his field. Now he interprets this. Look with me at verse 37. And he gives the interpretation. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. What does that mean? That he planted seeds already decreed to be saved. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. We have a first aid kit in the back for any paper cuts. Chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What is missing there? It is a request for forgiveness because the man didn't ask. God just forgave him. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. Luke chapter 9, verse 35, during the transfiguration of Jesus, and the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God chose the son for the task of redemption. John chapter 1. We're going to slow down a minute in John because if you got the gospel of John wet and wrung it out, you would have a puddle of the sovereignty of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No saved person is born by their own will. 
John chapter 3, verse 8. Very familiar to you. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, start in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 37. Again, the words of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 37. And I want you to notice the order of events here. Chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, step 1, will come to me, step 2. Verse 44, same chapter. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him, granted him by the Father. Chapter 15 of John. Chapter 15, verse 16. Chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Chapter 17, verse 2. Notice the order once again. This is the high priestly prayer of Christ. Chapter 17, verse 2, since you have given them authority over all flesh to give eternal life, that's step two, to all whom you have given him, step one. Chapter 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9. Speaking of Saul, soon to become Paul. Chapter 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So much for softly and tenderly Jesus is calling. Chapter 13, verse 48. Chapter 13, verse 48. Gentiles hearing the gospel being offered salvation in Christ. Chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It is not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Chapter 18, verse 9. Acts 18, verse 9. Chapter 18, verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God just told Paul, a bunch of people in Corinth are going to get saved. They just haven't done it yet. Look with me at the book of Romans. Romans 8. These are familiar verses. We'll go quickly. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Chapter 9, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That is the decree of God. Verse 9, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Why? In verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Chapter 9, verse 10, or verse 15 rather. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's choice. Verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the the potter have no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Romans 11, verse 2 
Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chapter 16, verse 13. Right near the end of Romans. Chapter 16, verse 13. Just a little side note here. Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. The context here is Paul is is saying, who gets saved? Chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God. Chapter 2, verse 14. Is it possible for a human being to make an independent free choice? Verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. How did you get saved? What happened in that moment? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. What happened in the moment of salvation? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel is God's work. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. We hear from Paul, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Who initiated salvation? The Spirit of God. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 4. even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Philippians 1, verse 6, Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. So encouraging. Paul tells the believers in Colossae, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. We get a little side note about angels. We all know from Scripture there are the holy angels and the unholy angels how did we get the holy ones? 1 Timothy 5, 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, eclectos, the chosen ones. 2 Timothy 1, 9. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Now this one will knock your socks off. 2 Timothy 1, 9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Stop right there. Okay, of course, we all agree on that. I'm saved because God gave me grace. When did he give you grace? 
which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Philemon 4 and 5. Philemon 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. This is Paul thanking God, giving God credit for the faith of Philemon. God is the one who gave him faith. Hebrews chapter 13, right near the end of the book. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is speaking of the new covenant, but it's an eternal covenant. The word eternity in the Bible doesn't just mean from this point forward. It means from this point backwards also. What does that tell us? If there's a new covenant, there must be new covenant recipients. It's going to happen. James 1.18. James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. And it's like the closer you get to the end of the New Testament, the arguments just get better and better. 1 Peter 1, 1, Paul, or Peter, rather, an, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has, passive verb, caused us to be born again. We didn't do it. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, live a life that proves you're saved. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. I heard a sermon once when the, the, the preacher said, If you will only love God, He will love you back. Chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. God did the birthing. 2 John, chapter 1, verse 1. There's just one chapter. 2 John, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady. Verse 13. The children of your elect sister. 3 John, verse 11. 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Grammatically speaking, God is the efficient cause of salvation in all who would do good. Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What is that saying? Jesus chose to save Israel from Egypt and chose to destroy those who wouldn't believe. His choice. Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Chapter 17, verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. In chapter 21, verse 27, the very end of chapter 21, speaking of New Jerusalem, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What did chapter 13 and chapter 17 tell us about when the Lamb's book of life was completed? It was before the foundation of the world. 
I have not preached to you. I've simply read to you what the Bible says. 136 verses if you want to be precise. And it was a challenge cutting out the other 500 or so that I had to choose from. Hundreds and hundreds of passages that demonstrate that God is totally sovereign over all things. I know that some of you are still wrestling with the totality of the sovereignty of God and salvation. I know that. In fact, you might even ask, well, if I'm going to believe that God is sovereign over salvation, why would I even pray for the lost if God is sovereign anyway? Because prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign will. I believe this about every one of you who are genuinely regenerate and saved, regardless of where you stand on the issue of the sovereignty of God. I believe that you, every one of you, would be more than happy to hear your brother or sister in Christ or to hear me say to you, I am praying for the salvation of your lost wife. I am praying for the salvation of your lost husband. I am praying for the salvation of your lost adult child or your mom or your dad. I believe every one of you would be glad for those prayers. Because I believe that deep down in your heart, when you see other rebellion and somebody that you love like your own heart is just miles and miles and miles away from asking the Lord for mercy and for forgiveness, that they're as far from salvation as they could possibly be, I believe that you know deep down in your soul that God will have to do a work. That God will have to draw that seemingly hopeless lost person to Christ. And I believe that every one of you, out of love and compassion and hope, will happily receive the prayers of your fellow saints for God to intervene. For the Holy Spirit to blow and to miraculously change that person's heart. I don't think there's anyone here, regardless of where you stand on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, who would refuse and be upset at the prayers given for the one that you love like your own heart. No one would be upset over that. Why? Because in your heart of hearts, in the heart of a true believer, you believe that you must throw yourself on the mercy of God. And you must throw yourself on the mercy of a sovereign God when you see the human will rebelling. So we will join together to pray for God's miraculous work for the lost so that not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Let's pray. What a word we have, Lord. You've not asked us to hang our belief in the sovereignty of God on a verse or two. But quite literally, every inspired text of Scripture, every inspired book, proclaims to us that you are sovereign. And because you are sovereign, all glory belongs to you. Because you are sovereign, all honor belongs to you. Because you are sovereign, all credit belongs to you. And we join together, Lord, with the saints of the past 20 centuries. Indeed, with the saints going all the way back to the earliest in our Bible who believe in a sovereign God. We join together believing that prayer is the means by which your sovereign will is accomplished. And so we would pray, Lord, for our loved ones now, and and probably each person in this room has a a name in mind, a person that that is as dear to them as their own heart, a mother to a child, a, a son to a father, a wife to a husband. And we would plead to you for their souls. We would not plead for them to have an intellectual, eye-opening, free will experience because we have seen that that is not possible. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. But we would plead for you to do as you did with the Apostle Paul and to knock them to the ground and command them to be saved. That you would light the fire of faith in their heart that you would show them first their own sin and then show them the glory of the Savior such that the hardest of hearts and the most hardened of sinners would bend the knee and give all glory to God because a sinner was broken in two by the gospel.
Let this be a day when our prayers go forth, trusting your sovereign will, Lord. We won't worry about how you're going to divide the lost and the saved. That's your realm, not ours. We would just pray for the lost and trust that our prayers are in line with the fact that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Ecclesiastes 8 says that no matter how hard we try, we will never grasp you. We will never fathom your plan. We have but one choice. That is to trust you. And we do. Because your word has made it possible. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.